0: Let's take a journey all the way to the beautiful state of California. It's early April 1981. The sky's cloudy and the air feels thick. The specific area we're going to visit today is a rural resort town in the Sierra Nevada area of California, a specific resort town named Ketty. In this small town, everyone seems to know each other's names. It's full of rentable cabins for people to stay in that are all awfully close together. Yet, Even when living so close together, the sounds of screams, fleeting footsteps, muffled yells, all go unheard in the late hours of the April 11th of this year. And it isn't until one of the victim's 14-year-old daughters would soon discover the bodies of most of her family on April 12th. Sue... Her 15-year-old son John and his 17-year-old friend Dana Wingate were murdered in Cabin 28. In the midst of all this blood and panic, it wasn't discovered until later that the 12-year-old Tina Sharp was still missing. This is the Ketty Cabin Murders, and would be the start of an infamously brutal and corrupt investigation that would live in history forever. Welcome to the third episode of You Are Now Aware. Good evening, and welcome to You Are Now Aware, where we speak of mysterious murders, scary stories, and conspiracy theories, all hosted by Alex Wiseman-Rose. This is the third episode of this series, and I am happy to say that you can not only listen to us on Apple Podcasts, but we're also a separate entity on iHeartRadio. I, of course, would love for you to all keep listening to us live, but on the days you're unable to listen to us live, you can always find the podcasts on those other areas under the same name, You Are Now Aware. Today, we will explore the murder of Sue Sharp, John Sharp, Dana Wingate, and Tina Sharp on the April 11th of 1981, also known as the Ketty Cabin Murders. In the fall of 1980, 36-year-old mother Glenna Sue Sharp and her five children John, a 15-year-old boy, Sheila, a 14-year-old girl, Tina, a 12-year-old girl, Ricky, a 10-year-old girl, and Greg, a 5-year-old boy, escaped an abusive marriage by moving from Connecticut to Keddie, California, wanting to be closer to her brother Don. As a single mother of five, they lived relatively impoverished, but were still able to afford one of the many rentable cabins that were big enough for a whole family. She had rented specifically cabin number 28 at the Ketty Resort, and that's where she would live with her family until the night of her death. On the night of April 11th, 1981, Sue had allowed her two youngest boys to invite their 12-year-old friend Justin Eason, another kid who was newer to the area as well, stay the night. It was a perfect night for a sleepover due to having more available space since Sheila Sharp would be sleeping at another friend's house a couple houses away. Things seemed to be going on as any day would go. Sue in the living room, the children were having fun in a room adjacent to it. The eldest brother John was out hanging with another friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate and Quincy. Tina was in the next cabin over, cabin number 27, watching television. Soon Tina would be home around 10pm and John would bring his friend over to hang out in the room in the basement. It seemed as if it was a night that was not only normal, but was even a night filled with joy and laughter. Joy and laughter that would soon be cut off way too short. On the morning of April 12th, Shayla would be greeted with a horrific smell as she opened the door of her home around 7.45am. The smell would only raise questions, leading for her to step into her living room and see a heinous sight that would sadly stick with her forever. A sight no one should ever see or deserve to see. Her eyes would first see what appeared to be the remains of her brother, John. He was bound and lying on his back, blood on his face, neck, and all around his body. Something also seemed to be tied to him, something that she didn't immediately recognize. Her eyes would dart to a yellow blanket that seemed to be covering another body, and that was enough to snap her from her paralyzed state and send her running and screaming for help out of the building. There were the bodies of Sue, John, and Dana before her. All three had been bound by adhesive tape and wire, and blood seemed to soak the area all around them. Sources say the murders were notably merciless. On closer inspection, it looked as if Dana was bound to John, lying face down and tied to John at the feet. John's throat was slashed, and Dana had clear wounds on his head from some sort of constant blunt force trauma. Dana also looked to be manually strangled. Sue was discovered under the yellow blanket, lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down, and gagged with a blue bandana of her own undergarments that were sealed with tape. There were stab wounds on her chest, and there was what seemed to be an imprint of a butt of a Daisy 990 BB gun on the side of her head, and her throat seemed to also be slashed. All three showed signs of having wounds to the head that looked as if it was caused by a hammer though Dana looked as if he had been hit with a completely different hammer than all the others. They had all died of a mix of the knife wounds and blunt force trauma. Sheila would notify the neighbor, the Seabolts, and James Seabolt would retrieve Rick, Greg, and Justin through a bedroom window, who all seemed to be somehow unharmed in the adjacent bedroom. The Plumas County Sheriff Office was soon notified and went to quickly get to work on this matter. It was clear that the officers were not taking this as seriously as they should have. The crime scene was never secured, and it never seemed taken into account that James Siebold had been practically in the crime scene at one point with no one watching. Who knows what could have been changed by him. While investigators were searching the scene, 12-year-old Justin Eason would try to constantly tell the police that the youngest girl, Tina was still missing, yet he would be ignored. It wouldn't be till hours later when the police would actually fully realize that the little girl was indeed missing. This just shows how the officers were treating the case. The Plumas officers seemed to be not only lazy but extremely uncaring and unsympathetic. It was slowly turning into the living nightmare of an investigation that it would be known as forever. Inside Cabin 28, investigators found two kitchen knives, one that had been used with enough force to bend the blade severely. There was also a hammer that caused most of the victim's head trauma on the floor, right next to the pellet gun, which was also used earlier. The blood splatters on the walls of the living room showed clear signs of the murders being done in that room. More evidence would soon be found which would point to a darker turn of events. Blood was found in Tina's bed as well as knife marks on the walls, and a bloody footprint in the yard that was completely unexplainable. It was suspected that the motivation behind kidnapping the little girl was rape. It was also soon revealed that Tina's jacket, her shoes, as well as a shoebox containing various tools were also missing from the cabin. There were no signs of any sort of forced entry, but the blinds were closed and the phone was left hanging out of its hook. There was also an unidentified fingerprint that had been found on the handrails leading to the back door. While the brutal attacks inside the cabin were going on, the victim's sons, Ricky, Greg, and their friend Justin, who I mentioned before, were all staying in an adjacent room completely fine. were told to have been somehow sleeping, undisturbed throughout the whole attack. A couple who was in the cabin next door noted on being woken up by what sounded like muffled screams, which even pushed them to get up and look around, only to be unable to determine where it was coming from, and for the couple to somehow just go back to sleep. This doesn't sit right with me, and it shouldn't sit right with anyone. Somehow these muffled screams that were heard all the way next door, that woke up another couple, somehow didn't wake the three boys in the next room. That seemed almost impossible. What feels worse is the fact that the couple recognized the sounds as muffled screamings and were even concerned for a moment, yet soon just went back to sleep without calling the police. That also raises the question, why did the killer or killers seem to not harm the boys? Did they not notice them in the first place? There was blood in Tina's room, which meant there were some signs of targeting. But strangely, no entry into the room closest where the murders happened, where the boys were staying. It's possible that Tina heard the sound and went running downstairs to check, only to end up running upstairs to hide in her bed. Though, who really knows? The Plumas County Sheriff's Office questioned all those nearby in an effort to actually do something for the case. Interviewing Sharp's neighbors, Martin Smart, a.k.a. Justin Easton's stepfather, Marilyn Smart, a man named Betty and other nearby people. Martin Smart soon became known as the prime suspect when Smart had told officers that on the night of the murders, a friend named Severin John Betty was staying with the Smarts for a little after meeting him a few weeks before when the two were getting treated for PTSD at the local veterans' hospital. Smart had told the officers that he had fought in the Vietnam War and that's where he was unfortunately changed forever. Smart had also said that on the night of the murders, he went out with his wife Marilyn and Bubetti to the backdoor bar for drinks, since he worked there as a chef. Even if it was his night off, it seemed to be the place he frequented most. On the way to the bar, the group had actually stopped in at the Sharp residence to ask Sue if she wanted to join them for drinks, in which she politely declined. These three were clearly the few that had last seen Sue Sharp alive by the looks of it and which was a suspicious in itself. Smart was notably on edge that night too, complaining to the manager at the bar about the music being too loud, causing him to soon leave again back to his cabin, only for him to end up calling the bar again and complain about the music again. However, he and Boo would later go back to the bar that night as Miss Smart went to bed. Another huge reason as to why Smart was suspected was the fact that he was married to Marilyn, meaning, once again, he was the stepdad of Justin Eason. Even the officers noticed that the boys that all strangely survived were the ones with Justin Eason in the room right next over. Thinking they had their prime suspects, the police sent a couple of investigators to conduct some interviews with Martin, Marilyn Smart, and Betty. Marilyn saying that she and her husband had actually separated after the night of the murders. She noted that he was far too short-tempered and quick to violence. Marilyn Smart would actually move out of Cabin 26 on April 12th, the same day of the murders as well for that supposed reason. Soon the interviews were done, and Martin was even polygraphed, yet for some reason the police would just drop these two and conclude that none of them were involved in the murders. Even when Marilyn was later interviewed again and even said that her ex-husband hated John Sharp, the 15-year-old boy, and that she had found him burning something in the fireplace on April 12th as well. She wouldn't stop here, saying that her now ex-husband had put a bloody jacket belonging to Tina in the basement and claims that she turned it into the police, yet there was no official record of this ever happening. The investigation was a full-on nightmare. Not only did the townsfolk not bind together to help or give anything in effort to look for the missing little girl, the FBI had stepped aside from looking for Tina on April 29th of 1981 because they believed the officers at Plumas County were doing an adequate job by themselves. The suspects were decided as not part of the murders, and now the police were left with no one to look into. It was clear that they had given up, even with clear evidence before them, with these officers everything seemed to be hopeless. As time passed, stories would begin to change. It was later revealed that James Siebold had actually briefly stepped into the cabin through the back door to see if anyone was alive, potentially further invalidating the crime scene. Apparently, in later interviews, Justin Eason would say that he went from sleeping during the murders to describing a very detailed dream about on which he was on a boat watching John Sharp and Dana fight some sort of mysterious man with long black hair, a mustache, and black glasses. The man would be using a hammer to fight the two as well. He would also describe seeing a body covered in a sheet, and looking under the sheet, he saw Sue Sharp with a knife cut into her chest. In this dream, he said he would try to clog up the wound of a rag. As stated before, Sue was under a sheet and had a knife wound directly on her chest. Even later, he would be polygraphed and he would tell the polygrapher that he had actually seen the murders because of a noise waking him up. He would peek into the room and see two men standing over Sue as John and Dana came into the room and began arguing with the two men. He would later describe these men exactly for a sketch artist to draw. He even said that he would hide behind the door, as not only Dana got hit by a hammer while trying to escape, but also mentioned Tina coming down to ask if everything was alright, holding a blanket too, before being grabbed and taken out the back door. She would soon be stabbed in a chest or a pocket knife, according to him. This story was nothing to sleep on. It had off-truths and explanations as to where and why and when people were doing things. It proved to the point that someone would have had to have woken up during these murders. But there was a huge hole in all of this story. There was blood in Tina's bed, and in Justin's story she said she was never close to being attacked in her bed. How would blood have gotten to her bed if she was immediately pulled out the door? Was Justin's story false? Was it all a dream? His mother seemed to be known as a liar as well, Though unlike his mother, he wasn't specifically throwing Martin Smart under the bus, but possibly even protecting him. This theory may be out there, but it's plenty believable that he is saying that he saw the murders just to point out suspects that wouldn't be his stepfather. Though, who knows? It would only be more of a dumpster fire when the Plumas County authorities had received the details of the interviews with the three from earlier. Apparently, the specific interviewers were not even speaking as close to the officers as they should have. No one was putting in any effort, and somehow the investigators were doing worse than the police officers. Apparently during the interview, Bubetti said that he was a former Chicago police officer for 18 years, but retired after being shot, which was so obviously a lie, which would have been clear if they even glanced at his birth certificate or checked his medical records. Bubbetty also lied about how long his stay was in Keddie, and even tried to push the idea that Marilyn was somehow his niece. BuBetty would say that when he and Martin got home, Marilyn was awake. She said she was asleep. BuBetty said that he had never met Sue Sharp. Marilyn had once again said that they had stopped at her house that night. There was a clear pattern of the stories not lining up. Something was obviously wrong. A clear check or a small talk would have revealed that no one was saying the same thing. This wasn't even the biggest mistake. Somehow Smart slipped up, and the investigators either weren't listening or somehow misinterpreted the implications of what Martin Smart had said. Martin Smart had said during the interview that his stepson, Justin Eason, may have even woken up on the night of the murders and could have seen something, adding what should be the most explicitly incriminating thing he could have ever said. He added the words without me detecting him. He had said that his stepson could have possibly seen something on the night of the murders without being detected by him. This implies that he was there at the scene, hence, that's why he would be there to not detect his son in the first place. How this was ignored is simply baffling. It seemed as if this could have been the end of the case. Smart only dug his grave further, when after mentioning the hammers being used in the murder, he would add the fact that he had lost one of his hammers as well at the same time. These two were never interviewed again. And no longer a suspect, Martin Smart moved all the way to Klamath, and Bubetti would go to Chicago, where he would scam police officers until dying right after he was caught. Just, wow. Wow. I try to be more neutral on a tone of this show and try to not be baffled in how ignorant people can be. But it's almost as if the killers had confessed in the face of the police, and yet they were never interviewed again, or even looked at again. This raises a huge question. Were the officers really that dumb, or was this possibly done on purpose? It wouldn't be till the third anniversary of the murders, when the local police would receive an anonymous tip from an anonymous caller that a skull had been found 50 miles away was definitely Tina Sharps. In 1984, a forensic officer would even confirm it was her skull as well. The anonymous caller had specifically said the name and after telling them the location. The scariest part of all of it was that the call was never officially documented. Investigators had actually found a recording of the skull at the bottom of an evidence box in 2013. It was in a sealed envelope, untouched. Near the remains lied Tina's jacket, a blanket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. There was also her jeans that were missing a back pocket. This would have also put Marilyn's interview into question since she had sworn that she had seen Tina's bloody jacket in the basement, thanks to her husband. She had even said that she turned the bloody jacket into the police herself. Could any of her words actually be trusted? Could Justin's? Could anyone's? Martin Smith would die in 2000, and right after his death, his therapist would come to the Plumas County Sheriff's Office and say that Smart had confessed to him about the killings of Sue Sharp because he believed that she was trying to convince Marilyn to leave him. According to some sources, he did not mention killing any of the others, but according to some others, he had been on record saying that he had killed Tina specifically so no one would have been there to identify him, confirming that she had seen somehow. Though all accounts reveal that he stated that beating the polygraph test was easy and that the sheriff, Sheriff Thomas, was even his friend and had stayed at his house for a while. It wouldn't be till 2013 when Plumas Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg would reopen the case. Sheriff Hagwood was 16 years old at the time of the murders and had even known the Sharps. This was personal to him. He would even speak up of the suspicion of the police cover-up theory, even saying that he doesn't put anything outside of the realm of possibility. The first development would be when Mike Gamberg would discover a letter deep in the now dusty evidence box from Marty Smart to Marilyn Smart. The letter was apparently written after the murders that even says, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives you tell me we're through, great! What else do you want? Smart had even signed the letters. The letter seemed to also go perfectly with what the psychiatrist had said, speaking about how he had killed for Marilyn out of some sort of jealousy. And to try to win her back. It was written in the report that Marilyn Smart had given the police officers the letter as well, though much later she would say she didn't recall getting the letter, yet recognized it as her husband's handwriting. This seems to be another crucial piece of evidence that seemed to, as if it had been ignored and sealed away. Something that felt impossible to not understand unless purposefully done so. Though, thanks to this reopening of the case, it now seems to be actually in capable hands that make even more discoveries later on. The second development would be when Gamberg would find the taped phone call at the bottom of the box that had an anonymous man locate the identity of the skull. Now the audio is being compared with the voices of the suspects to try and get a match. The tape was never voice-analyzed back then. There was no attempt to identify the caller at all. Sheriff Hagwood would even state, Why that sat in a sealed evidence envelope never opened. I don't have an answer to that. On March 24th of 2016, Gamberg had found a hammer matching the description of the hammer Martin had claimed to have lost in the Ketty Pond. Sheriff Hagwood even noted that it looked as if it was clearly, purposefully placed there. In April of 2018, investigator Gamberg would also say that he had found DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene that matched a living suspect. That's the last piece of information that's been given to the public thus far, and we hope for more information to come soon, and to hopefully put an end to this case for good. At first, I was led to believe that all the misfortunes of this case were all simply chalked up to the police being careless, lazy... Or just brainless. But now, on further research, I think it's extremely likely that the police were in on it. Here they had letters that had direct confessions. They had Bubetti's clear lying about being a police officer, Martin Smart literally saying that he didn't detect his son seeing the murder, and a psychiatrist saying that he had confessed. And yet nothing was ever done, even after Smart's death. It seemed as if that the info was actively shoved aside and placed into unopened envelopes. Because as Smart stated before, he was friends with the sheriff. It was clear there was a cover-up. But how large and to what scale? Who was involved? As mentioned before, the neighbor said he had stepped into the house later after saying he originally rescued the boys from the room from outside. If he was actually in the house at some point, what could he have done? He could have moved stuff around, thrown stuff away. It's not exactly out of the realm of possibility. The new investigators say that they have a new suspect that's still alive, meaning that another person was there. The neighbors did not call the police during the muffled screams, which also raises questions. It seems as if it was all a setup, almost. I'm not directly implying that the whole town was in on it in in some sort of cultish fashion, though I do think it's possible that more people were involved than originally we were led to believe. The police clearly had some hand in ignoring the evidence specifically. Specifically the investigators by the looks of it. As a quote from Sheriff Hagwood, there are people locally who know more than they've said and I believe we've identified some of them and we know who they are and where they are and I have confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have first-hand information. Sheriff Hagwood said there were six possible suspects, all of which were still alive. Yet to this day, no one has been charged. Who knows who's still out there and what is left to be discovered. Thank you for listening to my podcast and remember to check in every Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Moon 91 Fun story, I actually did this show at 7 o'clock, like today. So after realizing I did it an hour early, I realized I just had to go right to the recording studio at this college and just get it all done and get it all out of the way so I could get it out quicker because I know... A lot of people that wanted to listen to this who were unable to because of my mess up, so hopefully that doesn't happen again. If you wish to contact me, you can contact me at the following email, awiseman-rose23 at worcester.edu. Again, that's awiseman-rose23 at worcester.edu. This episode's information came from a ThoughtCo article, the Keddie Murder Wikipedia, the Plumas News, and multiple videos and snippets of random documentaries. Give yourself a pat on the back if you stuck through this whole episode and now you can know that you are now aware. I hope this sticks with you and you know that people may not be as ignorant as they seem and that groups of people may really be out to get you. Stay aware, my friends. And remember, they are always watching.